everyone, welcome to the Samungo's podcast. This is episode 74 and today's subject is skin and soft tissue infections with Professor Dave Tallon from UCLA in Los Angeles. Now, Dave gave a wonderful talk on this subject for the Pocketbook of Emergency Medicine and we're going to play that shortly. You can also watch the lecture in its entirety at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. Before we play that talk, we got Dave on a call to give his top five pearls of wisdom. I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, look, Dave, thank you very, very much for joining me on the St. Mungo's podcast. We're about to play your wonderful talk on skin infections. Um, and the users will have access to the video as well, obviously. But you're very kind to join us because you're going to give us uh, some pearls of wisdom uh, for emergency uh, uh, medicine professionals. Before we do that, uh, Dave, do you mind just telling our listeners where you are in the world and what your professional background is? Yes. Yeah, so um, uh, thank you for having me, first of all. And for those of you I have not met yet, um, uh, I'm an emergency physician in the United States. Uh, I've been at UCLA my whole career. I trained there and I stayed there as a faculty, but I've also worked out in the community at some critical access hospital emergency departments. Um, my special interest in emergency medicine is infectious diseases. And when I was a young man, I initially was interested in being a research cardiologist of the um, endurance athlete. Wow. Um, and so um, I headed off to train in internal medicine, which was a prerequisite for cardiology. Um, and then I, I guess I was a, um, a few steps ahead of my time. I couldn't find mentors. And the other thing that happened was when I they would put us on rotations through the emergency department, I found that I liked that type of medicine in general much better. And so I, um, I finished my internal medicine residency, did another one in emergency medicine, saw some young children with bacterial meningitis, something fortunately we don't see as much today because of uh, vaccinations. And I thought, well, this will be my focus uh, to teach and to research. And I, and I, then I went on to do um, infectious diseases fellowship. And I've, I've spent my career sort of thinking about that intersection because infections are so important in, in what we do every day. It's a, a large portion of, of our work, our questions, uh, patient morbidity and, and mortality as well. So anyhow, that, that's how I come to you today. Although I think you've asked me for some pearls that are more general than my specific little niche. And uh, I'll do my best to, to think about those and, and share them with all of you. Brilliant. Okay. But why don't we just jump in? If you're happy enough just to give us those five pearls, that'd be fantastic. Thank you. Okay. So there's five. You asked for five. So my first one is very practical. And, and that's, um, you know, we all have shifts. That's the nature of our work. And my advice to you is to routinely show up early. Um, I train students and residents. And uh, of course, we're all very proud of, we feel like we're the smartest and we know the answer. But it turns out like when you get out into the real world, um, of, of course, it's important to be smart to give the best patient care. But if you wanna be popular in your group and in your hospital, you can do something very simple that doesn't require a lot of reading, which is just show up 15, 20 minutes early. Um, you know, we all know that feeling at the end of the shift and when we're tired and uh, more patients are coming in. So if you see your friend there, 
earlier than he or she has to be that that's something great and that's going to make you very popular with the people you work with and that's and if you're popular and people like you you're going to enjoy your work better so think about that okay that's one number two is um learn to enjoy the non-emergencies because that's going to be most cases we ask um, medical students when they apply for residency, why do you want to go into emergency medicine? And many of them say, well, it's exciting. I want to be able to save lives. But any of us who've worked very long know that while you will sometimes save lives, that doesn't happen routinely. Sometimes we save lives that we kind of wonder if we should save because these poor people are suffering. But most cases are going to be routine cases. And I, and I think it's important to develop strategies so that um, or attitudes so that you can enjoy those cases. And, and that might mean um, when you introduce yourself to the patient, ask them about themselves. You're, you're exposed to the world of humanity and all their different experiences. Find out something about your patient. Where were they born? What did they do? What's that tattoo on their arm about? <laughs> Things like that. Um, Yes, you might say, well, you know, that's just a good good way to establish rapport. But you, I think the more you do it, the more interesting you'll find it uh, for yourself, right? And uh, and the patient will feel that they're special and respected. That's that's a good thing too. Um, and along these lines, to to make these non-emergency experiences positive, you know, learn how to make happy endings. Um, and sometimes that involves props. Uh, so these are people who are going to be going home. They came in, they were very worried. You should become very expert at making them feel reassured and like they have a path forward. Um, one of the things that I think helps a lot are sort of props. I think uh, bedside ultrasound um, is a great thing. You can show people their organs. They, they're not used to seeing something like that happen in an emergency department or the patient that comes in with atypical chest pain that you don't think is anything. You can bring them their EKG and circle the word normal. Hopefully the word normal appears, not STEMI or something on top of it. And you can say, well, look, here's the, you know, let me explain this for a few seconds to you and uh, why it's reassuring. So some of these things, um, uh, how you introduce yourself, how you close that non-emergency interaction can be not only very important to the patient, but important to your longevity because it's, it's a busy, stressful specialty and it's easy to burn out. So if you can be reinforced by the majority of experiences, that's going to help. It's going to help you. Um, so number three, um, I guess I mentioned a little bit, which is um, uh, point of care or bedside ultrasound. Um, I mean, look at me. I've been in this specialty a long time before you know, we had ultrasound that we we used. And I would say of all the advances um, in my practice, that's the most important one in terms of um, basically saving my ass and the patient's ass by being able to come up with an important uh, diagnosis at, at the bedside. And so... Um, history, physical exam, all very important, but be comfortable and use ultrasound liberally. Um, it's going to improve 
patient care. And it's also very rewarding. I mean, all of us are curious. We're all challenged to make the right diagnosis. But uh, ultrasound not only helps you do that, it helps you do that in some of the most critical situations. And so um, that's number three. Um, number four is to make friends with your consultants. We need consultants. Um, get to know them. Um, kind of a little bit along the lines of what, what I told you about getting to know the patients. So not just for their medical knowledge, but make friends with them. Uh, ask them about some new paper in cardiology or infectious disease or whatever it is they specialize in. Um, tell them about an interesting case, even if it's not the case that they're consulted for. And ask them what they would do. Uh, make them feel like they're important to you. And the more you build those relationships, the better they will be at helping you and also teaching you. Um, and at the same time, um, that relationship elevates the Department of Emergency Medicine all throughout the hospital. They say, well, there are knowledgeable, inquisitive, interesting, and nice men and women who are doctors there. And, and that's a good thing for everybody. And then um, finally, I'd say number five would be uh, make a list of cases that you have questions about um, and follow them up. I know it's extra work. Um, we all go back to our charts to review them and sign them, but um, it's also important to take a peek later um, at those patients, maybe whom you've admitted and you weren't quite sure, or um, you know, even some ones that go home just to see if if they did well. Now with electronic medical records, it's much easier to do this. And this is how you learn. So look, um, you know, I'm 60 now, and I could tell you that I, I continue to see things that um, are new to me. And, and that's a wonderful thing about this specialty, I guess for the right person, but you'll only become better and better if you follow up and, and see what happens later. And, that, and it does take a little extra time. You don't get paid extra for it, but it'll make you a better doctor and it'll make you happier in the specialty. Okay, that's my five. Fantastic. A great five they were as well. Thank you very much, Dave. We're just uh, we're going to jump into your talk now. Thank you. Hello, everybody. My name is Dave Talent. I'm a uh, professor of emergency medicine and medicine and infectious diseases at UCLA uh, School of Medicine in Los Angeles. Thanks for having me today. And I'm going to talk with you about skin and soft tissue infections. Um, I'm, I have an unusual background. I'm, a, I'm primarily an emergency physician, but I also trained in infectious diseases. And basically, over my career, I focused on researching and thinking about um, how infections intersect our practice uh, in the emergency department. So today, we're going to focus on a common infection, um, infections that involve the skin and soft tissue. So this is my financial disclosure. I've been doing work with CDC a long time and oversee uh, a network of emergency departments in the United States to um, study emerging infectious disease problems. Um, I have a research grant to look at uh, something related to skin infection, which is a, a the development of a new uh, vaccine to prevent staphylococcal infections, which we intend to trial among patients with skin infections because of their tendency to have recurrence. Um, and that's the uh, uh, 
entity listed there, Integrated Biotherapeutics, and they're the one developing the vaccine. So those are my financial disclosures. So I started getting interested in skin and soft tissue infections because I really like animals. Actually, I'm very fond of dogs. I, I'm not crazy about cats. Cats in particular are very dangerous when they bite or claw deeply to cause infections. And these animals have uh, uh, virulent bacteria in their mouths. Uh, emergency departments uh, see a lot of people. And even though these infections are not that common through uh, a group of emergency departments, we decided to try to study the microbiology uh, of these bite infections, uh, which hadn't been done carefully and in a large series before. And we uh, acquired about 50 of each of those cases and dog and cat bite infections. You can see where they're located, mostly the hand. Unfortunately, we put the most important part of our body to fend off the animal and towards their mouth. So, so these have a lot of problems when they get infected. We found that Pastorella, which is a, a pathogen uniquely colonizing the mouth of dogs and cats, but not in humans, uh, caused most infections. It was thought that these were mainly found in cat bite infections, but also were the most common in dog bite infections. But then they were mixed too. They were uh, due to bites, so anaerobes were involved often, and occasionally uh, um, staph, um, mostly MSSA. We haven't really seen MRSA emerge with these, because MRSA doesn't colonize either the mouth of the animal or the human skin. And so drugs like cephalexin, first-generation cephalosporins, or the coxacillin aimed at step and strep, wouldn't be sufficient uh, because they don't cover pastorella, which is highly virulent. You can see in the uh, brackets, the onset of infection is even shortest with pastorella. It's, it's that dangerous. And so we use broader spectrum agents like amoxicillin clavulanic acid or combinations of fluoroquinolones and metronidazole or one of the broader spectrum um, fluoroquinolones, moxifloxacin. Something changed around the millennium um, in emergency departments in the U.S., and may maybe where you practice too. You'd work a shift, and occasionally you'd see someone with an abscess, and then all of a sudden it seemed like your emergency department was full of these patients. This shows you the rise in the number of cases of um, coded through the ED for skin infections, and look how at the inflection going up at the year 2000. At the same time, we started to notice something unusual um, in the few patients that would have culture sent of the uh, material from their wounds. We started to see an isolate we never saw before from community infections, uh, methicillin-resistant staph aureus. We all know this is MRSA now, but we were part of the this story and its discovery and change of treatment. So I'll tell you about that. We put together... Uh, we used our network that I described through the CDC to look at carefully at the microbiology and the strain typing um, of, of staph isolates because we were suspicious that something was changing. And in one month, in 2004, we collected hundreds of cultures and, and found that MRSA, which hadn't virtually ever been a community 
pathogen cultured from wounds now accounted for 59%. These were purulent, so they were wounds with purulent drainage or abscesses um, uh, that were uh, a sample. This was a big change, and the uh, editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine that accompanied article said it was a landmark study and commented on the amazing extent to which community-associated MRSA, particularly a certain strain, USA 300, um, spread through the U.S. population and really around the world. It changed practice. So you see the box to your lower right says concordant antibiotics. That means the empirical antibiotics that were used for these infections um, um, having um, activity against MRSA um, when that was present. And that occurred in less than half the cases when we look, looked at this first in 2004, but by 2008, when we looked again, uh, almost all the empirical treatments were now anticipating MRSA and covering for that infection. So practice changed. And uh, this shows you the frequency of MRSA from various types of uh, wound infections. And you can see the U.S., but many, many other countries, certainly all over the world, um, uh, experience the same thing. Interestingly, there are parts of the world still that don't, do not see MRSA. And you can see this is Iceland, Norway, Sweden, the Netherlands, so Scandinavia, for some reason. Um, it's not just that it's cold, which is MRSA is seen in some colder countries. So no one's quite sure why that is. But it's, this is a very common problem in most places. Um, following that surveillance study that sort of defined the emergence of MRSA as a, as a common problem, the NIH granted us uh, to do research of commonly used off-patent, inexpensive oral antibiotics uh, for various types of skin infections. We constructed three trials. I'm going to tell you about the two most interesting. The first one it dealt with abscesses and the question of whether after uh, adequate incision and drainage antibiotics improve outcomes or not. And uh, that was a placebo-controlled trial against trimethoprim sulfa. Um, and then um, on the other side of this diagram, you see a study of cellulitis, um, which in pure cellulitis, there's nothing to culture. And these are had been presumed mostly due to strep. But with the tremendous emergence of MRSA, the question came up as to whether um, MRSA active antibiotics should also be used. And so I'll tell you about that. So in 2008, before we did these trials, the New England Journal of Medicine put out a, a case and asked their international readership what they would do. They, they described the young basketball player with a buttock abscess and low-grade fevers. And they said, would you just do incision and drainage alone, or would you also give some antibiotics, and would they cover MRSA? And you could see uh, practitioners did this all different ways, almost equally distributed. And a good portion only uh, did incision and drainage and felt that antibiotics were unnecessary. And the reason that there was this 
lack of consensus was because there really weren't ever good studies to determine if adjunctive antibiotics helped. So that's what we did. We did this study, and it was published actually 10 years after the one I just showed you, where we randomized patients in a double-blind fashion to get trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, two double strengths, twice a day for seven days, placebo. And, um, and then we followed them for their outcomes. And uh, here's what we found. The primary outcome was needing a new antibiotic prescription. And, um, and uh, our, our cure, the opposite of that cure, was not needing a new antibiotic prescription, which occurred in about 93% of those treated with antibiotics compared to eight, about 86% in the placebo group. And that was statistically superior uh, and supported the use of antibiotics. However, there's still a high um, cure rate uh, just with incision and drainage. But all the secondary outcomes greatly favored antibiotic treatment. And so I'll show you those. Um, maybe a better primary outcome is not only the need for a new antibiotic prescription, but also, or alternatively, the need to have another um, incision and drainage, a drainage procedure. And, and when we looked at that outcome, the difference in cure rates was even greater. It was about 12 percentage points from 74 to almost 87%. Many of the other outcomes were better. This next one is the most striking. Over six to eight weeks, an incredible percentage of patients, and again, these are just patients coming in off the street to the ED, not to a specialty clinic because of recurrent infections. Over six to eight weeks, the placebo group, 19% had a recurrent infection in a new site, and uh, or a new infection in a new site, and this was reduced in, in almost half in the antibiotic group. So were similar infections in household members and subsequent admissions. And so for a $5 antibiotic, this seemed like a pretty good benefit. They, there was no difference in adverse event rates, and there were no cases in, I don't know, over 1,200 patients of Steven Schatzen syndrome. So um, uh, practice has shifted in the United States, perhaps where you work too, because of this study actually and another study that was also funded by NIH that came out around the same time that had similar results. We, we looked at uh, some subgroup analyses uh, we wanted to see if the beneficial antibiotic effect uh, resided in a certain group of patients, like ones that had a larger abscess or more redness around it. And uh, this just shows you that the, that the difference, the advantage to the antibiotics, anything above zero, which isn't even shown here, um, means that the antibiotics are helpful. And no matter how you uh, defined it, that benefit existed over the range of abscess sizes, over the range of surrounding cellulitis or redness in every patient subgroup, um, except one. The antibiotics didn't help if Staph aureus wasn't cultured from the wound, which is sort of very biologically consistent. There were some maybe inflamed cysts that weren't really infected, so antibiotics would not be expected to work, and that was the only group where we didn't see a signal of benefit. 
All right, so let's move on to cellulitis. So this is uh, this is kind of like your typical tropical case. There's no nothing to culture. Uh, we presume these have, have been due to strep because of correlations with uh, subsequent uh, anti-streptococcal antibodies, uh, which can't really culture much from this. Occasionally, there's bacteremia, and again, you tend to see streps, but not always. So uh, we tried to sort of solve this puzzle by doing an experiment where we took a biopsy into the middle of the cellulitis and then one on the uh, symmetrical portion of the uninfected limb and subjecting that tissue to molecular techniques for diagnosis like PCR and uh, sequencing. And we thought we'd just subtract out the control isolates, and that would tell us the cause. Um, we, we got a phone book of strange organisms and common ones, but it wasn't different between the two. So we, this didn't work, but that brought us to this other NIH uh, trial that I told you about with cellulitis. And this one tested the idea whether or not uh, if you added MRSA treatment, uh, you'd get better outcomes. So the groups were cephalexin, which would treat strep, and MSSA, uh, uh, cephalexin placebo versus cephalexin with trimethrim sulfa to cover MRSA. And we did not find a, a difference in uh, cure rates uh, between the two groups. So we now recommend that uh, just narrower spectrum, non-hemorrhoisa treatments uh, can be given. Now, there's probably exceptions. Um, use use POCUS to see with an ultrasound if there's an underlying abscess, uh, because also we do the staph. Some patients who failed here probably had abscesses in evolution because they later presented with an abscess, and those were due to staph, but didn't seem to be prevented anymore with trimethrim sulfa. Um, and, um, uh, you know, people who have a history of MRSA infections, maybe you want to anticipate treating that. But otherwise, drugs like cephalexin, you know, maybe even just penicillin are fine. All right, so here's a question for you. It's hard to, we're not, it's hard to do audience participation when there's no feedback, but trying to do this with me. So let's say you have a 25-year-old male, comes in with an abscess on his arm, he denies intravenous drug use. Um, he says he's had MRSA abscesses in the past, which were treated with incision and drainage and antibiotics. He doesn't have fever, chills, or sweats. And so you perform an incision and drainage here, you see a picture of this, you pack the wound and you prescribe trimethrim sulfa, like I told you, for seven days and no culture is sent. You see the abscess on the ultrasound there. Um, it's one of these early ones, so it's not completely dark and clear, but you can see it's circumscribed, so it's definitely an abscess. And then three days later, he returns because the lesion persists. It's four centimeters, so a little bit uh, smaller, but still red and painful to palpation, no fevers. So what's your management? I'll give you choices, A, ultrasound, B, admit, and IV vancomycin, C, change uh, from trimethrim sulfur to clindamycin, D, change to doxycycline, 
or E, change the packing and provide reassurance that the lesion will eventually go away. And I think the correct answer is ultrasound. Because the most common, re I think the most, I, I think the best answer is ultrasound. Because uh, the most common reason for treatment failures that we found is undrained pus, not antibiotic failure. So um, I want to emphasize that a few things about uh, abscess evaluation. When they don't go away, think about um, uh, another pocket of pus or an inadequately drained pocket of pus. So use your ultrasound generously. Um, incision and drainage is superior to needle aspiration. That's been demonstrated. And so uh, always, if there is a collection, do an ID. Now, you don't always have to do packing. There's loop drainage seems to be fine. But you have to incise and drain the area of pus adequately, and needle aspirations been shown to be insufficient. Um, if if you find pus, always assume it's staph. And if you live in an area, perhaps other than Scandinavia, you have to think of MRSA. Antibiotic resistance is pretty uncommon to drugs like trimethrim sulfa, um, but there is some resistance emerging. So you can see that um, this is one of our hospitals in 2019. 80, only 87% of MRSA isolates were uh, susceptible in the test tube to trimethrim sulfa. And I think that's going down. So we're going to be looking at that. But clindamycin is no longer um, a treatment I would recommend. You know, let's say someone's sulfallergic. I think doxycycline is the better choice. <clears throat> Drugs like linazolid are also very active. They're not too expensive in, in your uh, where you where you work. Okay, let's um, let's move on to uh, another area of um, emergency department decision making, which is like who needs the hospital. I mean, we're talking about a five dollar antibiotic, but admitting someone to the hospital costs thousands of dollars, and uh, typically that happens through the emergency department. In this study, we asked the the physicians. Um, uh, why they wanted a certain patient admitted. And the most common reason of all was the need for IV antibiotics, which was actually the only reason in about 40%. So that make, makes you wonder, like, are there other ways maybe to treat these infections, whether it be oral antibiotics or different IV antibiotic delivery strategies? Um, let's look at some other reasons uh, people would be admitted, the need for surgical intervention and the or the person's homeless, maybe they're vomiting, it's not clear that they'll take their oral medications. And then at the bottom are some serious conditions like sepsis and endocarditis. And the, and the one type of skin infection we absolutely can't miss, which is necrotizing fasciitis. So let me just briefly talk about that. So here's a typical case, patient will present with um, an area of cellulitis. Um, you might see these hemorrhagic webs, but often early on, this just looks like everything else. So the distinguishing features are that patients tend to be really uncomfortable and they look sick. They may have evidence of compartment syndrome. Um, but at, at the earliest stage, it's hard to tell these from cellulitis. You should draw a line around um, the area of cellulitis if there's any concern. 
and then you know come back in a half hour or an hour and see if that's rapidly progressed because that will be a clue that there's necrotizing fasciitis. Not all cases have gas-producing organisms, but the ones that do may cause um, uh, crepitance on your physical exam, or if there's a classic necrotizing fasciitis, it cuts across that fascial pain and through the nerves going up to the skin. So you may see find local anesthesia over the area of cellulitis. That's clue two. People are sick. Their laboratory tests are abnormal. And you've probably heard of this score called the LRINEC score, um, which has performed very well when it was derived, but not so well later in studies of actual practice. And that's because when it was derived, they derived it in people with, who clearly had necrotizing fasciitis and clearly had cellulitis. Not that a real-life circumstance where you know, the obvious ones are easy, and it's the ones in the middle. So, but keep in mind that you know some of these lab findings, if, if you come across them in patients who you might otherwise suspect have early necrotizing fasciitis, th these would th these would you know increase your suspicion, like the sodium going down or or the you know white count and CRP being very high. Uh, other clues would be the uh, muscle enzymes or myoglobin in the urine. And uh, the uric acid will go up from because of cell breakdown. And sometimes, depending on the site of the initial infection, uh, patients will be initially misdiagnosed as having gout. So keep that in mind. And imaging can help. You don't want to, you know, have the patient in line for an MRI at three or four hours because these are emergency conditions. But, you know, if you see gas or if you see swelling and involvement in the fascia and muscle, that would increase your suspicions, your suspicion as well. Okay, so back to our question then about who needs hospitalization. Well, we did a large study looking at correlates with bad outcomes, death, needing the operating room or the ICU. And these were some of the findings like abnormal imaging or uh, findings of sepsis, diabetes, vast age and, and infections involving the hand. Now, obviously, you could have any of these and be perfectly stable and not need to be in the hospital. But um, in their absence, you can feel very sure that you have a patient who's likely to do well. Um, so one strategy for these borderline cases, perhaps to avoid hospital admission, is to start out with an intravenous dose in the emergency department before discharge on oral antibiotics. And a common practice has been to give a single dose of IV vancomycin, which I'm going to tell you is a fallacy because um, uh, vancomycin actually requires several doses before it accumulates enough to, to reach a therapeutic level. So a single IV dose is not going to really do anything. There are other strategies um, that would, would make sense. Um, uh, you could leave in the peripheral IV and have the patient return. And there's some once-a-day sort of vancomycin-like uh, intravenous antibiotics. Daptomycin is one, amatocyclin is another. So you could do that. Now, daptomycin was very, very expensive. And here, it's gone off patent, so it's not so expensive. So that might be something in some places that you could think about. 
Um, and then there's these single dose, and these are fascinating. With one IV dose, these two drugs, Stalbovensin and Aritabensin, hang around over several weeks and are sufficient as a single intravenous dose to train a serious skin infection. So we did some more study with this. I'll tell you about this. We, we did a before and after study with the idea that since in 40% of the hospitalized cases, the only reason for admission was IV antibiotics, we wondered if we made a, one of these long-acting single-dose intravenous antibiotics available, if that would change emergency physicians' uh, behavior and result in a lower hospital admission rate. So we took people who had a minimum area of cellulitis that was about, um, you know, this, at least the size of a cell phone. And, but they were more, actually bigger, more like an iPad, I'll show you. And we excluded patients who had some absolute reason that they should be in the hospital, like we talked about. Maybe they needed to go to the OR, we thought they had necrotizing fasciitis. So otherwise, other than this big area of cellulitis, there wasn't, there wasn't an absolute reason they needed to be at the hospital. And then we, we looked at usual care and the hospital admission rate. And then, uh, then we introduced Dalbovansin for all patients meeting the, these criteria. We gave them one dose, and simultaneously we educated the physicians about what Dalbovansin was. It was a single dose, approved treatment, for serious skin subtition infections. And then we just observed the hospitalization rate. And um, so this is now the study flow chart. We had a little over 120 in each group. They were well matched. Um, they had a large area of cellulitis, over 250 centimeters squared, which is again, kind of the size of the iPad, but 20% had diabetes, many, uh, had BMIs over 30, uh, maybe about 15, 20% had SIRS criteria or an elevated white blood cell count. And so what did we find? So our main outcome was the hospitalization rate through 14 days, which was reduced more than half by uh, 21 percentage points. And even in those who were admitted, the length of stay was less than the um, uh, clinical pathway group with Dalbovansin. And that reduction in hospitalization rate held up uh, through um, the next 30 days, through 44 days. So, um, so was it cost-effective? Um, that's the question. These drugs are not off patent. Uh, the wholesale cost of Dalbovansin, which again, given as a single dose, um, is, was $4,600. The uh, cost of estimated hospital stay is $2,400. Then median length of stay of three days, um, which would suggest that if you choose your patients appropriately, um, this would be cost effective. It also raises the question of who really needs the hospital. And maybe, um, you know, many of these patients could have also been treated at home with careful monitoring, IV and oral antibiotics, or one of those other strategies I talked about. But it clearly suggests that there's opportunity to reduce hospitalizations, and the cost of care overall for patients with serious skin soft tissue infections. So I hope you enjoyed my presentation on skin soft tissue infections. We covered 
talking calf bites and their unusual microbiology, uh, MRSA, uh, and uh, its involvement in uh, abscesses, and, uh, the effect of antibiotic treatment and addition to incision and drainage, and the role of narrower or broader MRSA treatment in cellulitis, which the latter doesn't appear to be necessary. Then we got into some the serious conditions that you can't miss, like neck fash. And finally, coming us, I mean, you think about um, who really needs hospital admission and some new strategies and new antibiotics that, that might um, change the future of how we approach our management of these very common types of infectious diseases. Okay, everybody, hope you enjoyed that. And um, thank you for watching. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Steve. That was a fantastic talk. Thank you. Um, before we let you go, um, if that's okay, do you mind? I always finish these podcasts with the same question I ask every guest. And that is, if I could take you back on a time machine to meet your junior self, just starting your career with all the experience that you've gained now in your career, what one piece of advice would you give your junior self just starting theirs? Yeah, when I started out, I saw emergency medicine, the greatest challenge to me, as a specialty of efficiency. And and so I, I, I tried to learn as much as I could about um, classic presentations of diseases and learn to recognize and understand pathways and patterns for treatment quickly. And um, um, that is one of the aims of, uh, of our training, right, is to become efficient. We have a lot of patients to see. We have to start through the ones that we can get through quickly and stabilize people. And so that was the first thing I did. But then I, as time went on, I realized that um, that will only get you so far. It's just extremely important core ability. But the best emergency physicians are not only ones that can go fast, but ones who know when to slow down. And so it, it's important to gain wisdom as to when some of the facts don't fit into those patterns and not to force them into patterns because then you'll make mistakes and to understand when to go slow. And the best emergency physicians, and this doesn't happen right away. It tends to happen over time because there's so much to learn. Not only know when the algorithms are there and they can trust them and go fast so that they understand the chess game and all the moves, right? If this test is negative, I go this way. If it's positive, I go this way. And then that's the treatment. But they also understand when things don't quite fit those standard algorithms and they need to go slow. Uh, maybe observe the patients, send some more tests, get some help with consultants or admit the patient because, you know, you just can't quite figure it out, but you're concerned. So learn how to go fast, but remember, ultimately, also recognize there will be times when you need to go slow. Listen, thank you very much. A wonderful talk and wonderful pearls of wisdom. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. You're welcome. So many, many thanks to Dave Talon for that wonderful lecture and the wonderful pearls of wisdom. Remember, at Continuous, there are hundreds of international experts 
providing lectures and courses uh, for you to enjoy. So please check those out. The mission of Continuous is to support equal access to knowledge and to provide equal opportunity for healthcare professionals all over the world. And we have a mission to support those in low and middle income countries. So every time you use Continuous, you'll be supporting that mission. Until next time, please take care.